Hello and welcome to Movie Challenge Accepted. I'm Jason. And I am Marco. And we're back and we don't usually ask much of you guys. We haven't asked anything actually of you guys. And uh, don't worry, we're not starting a Patreon. We're not, uh, we're not holding the hat out yet. But Arco and I were talking and we're in this for the long haul, he and yeah. I. Yeah, we are, we are enjoying this, folks. Yeah, we are, and we hope to do this for a long time because this is what we do most of the time, and we don't have anyone listening to us except each other, so it's good that we get a few people listening. But in order to keep that audience growing and maybe kind of get into some other areas, we're just going to ask, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, just give us a rating, maybe a review, unless you hate us. If you hate us... Don't rate us. Yeah, if you, definitely not. If leave you a hate review. us, don't rate us and don't review us. But if you do like us and if you don't mind listening to us go on and on about movies, it would help us out a lot. And uh, that's all we ask. Yes, we we would really appreciate it. And we thank you to everybody who has uh, rated us, have left a review. We appreciate every everybody uh, sending us uh, nice messages through uh, various social media platforms. Uh, really enjoying what we're doing, and we are happy that you guys are enjoying it also. Yes. All right. So uh, that out of the way, mm-hmm. this kind of became an uh, this week's episode kind of became an unexpected crime fiction movie challenge. Right. Uh, right. We don't discuss the movies that we're going to challenge one one another with ahead of time. Sometimes we ask, like, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Right. But most of our decisions are made kind of in the moment. Right. And and we don't talk about the films as we're watching them other than, you know, a little tidbit here and there. I'm watching it now or I'll watch it later on. But uh, we never really talk about it until we get onto the podcast. So uh, you're you're hearing it live as we are doing it. Yes, you're privy to our reactions in real time. <laughs> lucky, lucky you. Yes, yes. Um, and I bring up the fact that this is a crime fiction pod, uh, podcast episode because somehow we each challenged one another with kind of a neo-noir movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave you uh, Ryan Johnson's directorial debut, the 2005 or 2006 uh, Brick, starring right. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And much to my surprise... Mm-hmm. You gave me a movie I never heard about. Never heard. Of. I am so shocked. I, I really was shocked last week when you told me that you had not heard of it. But um, you know, looking back on it, I can see that because it was definitely an under under the radar movie, uh, even though it did get but positive reviews overall. Yeah, you gave me the uh, two thousand and three uh, movie Confidence, right, starring right. Edward Burns, Rachel Weisz, mm-hmm. Andy Garcia, and Dustin Hoffman. Right. And let me tell you. On paper, mm-hmm. this is a movie that I would love. For okay. those of you that don't know, I'm trying. I've I've done some writing. I uh, I've done some short stories, a couple novels. I'm trying to throw out, but I'm in, I'm deep in the world of crime fiction. I love movies like Height, uh, like Heat, um, uh, Den of Thieves, mm-hmm. um, some of the The Wire, The Shield, like th- these like kind of staples of crime stories. I'm just very into them. Okay, but- and so when you but no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I just wanted to, uh, when, I, I wanted to add to that as soon as you're done. Yeah. So when you gave me this, mm-hmm. I never heard of it, and this mm-hmm. has like legit stars, it, and it does, it does. And it's about a, it's about a, a con, uh, a grift, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm into that kind of, kind of movie. As am I. As am I. My, my, my one concern with this film <laughs> is, you know, I know how you feel about being spoon fed. And this film is one of those films that oh boy oh, <laughs> is 
well, not only do they spoon feed you this film, how they give it to you, they basically tell you, you know, they do everything in reverse. They basically tell the the movie in in flashbacks. So, you know, it's it's one of those films that people kind of um, will either love or hate. And uh, that that was the one thing that I was worried about with this film with you. So take it away. All right. So confidence. Is a movie about uh, Edward Burns plays a grifter. Um, he and a few of his boys run these uh, run these cons on various underworld types, and they inadvertently con Dustin Hoffman, who plays a uh, sort of a criminal underworld uh, kingpin. They con him out of money, and in the classic retelling of The Sting, the right. the great 1973 movie with uh, Redford Newman, mm-hmm. they have to go out and con someone else in order to get Hoffman's money back. Right. Plus, and, you plus, know, it's, plus the Vig. <laughs> plus the Vig. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, the, the, the main character, Ed Burns, plays a guy named Jake Vig, yeah. if you could be a little more on the nose. <laughs> well, and, listen, do we know if it's his real name? Let's be honest. <laughs> no, no. The, the whole idea is that everyone in the movie is lying. Everyone right. is, is playing everyone. And, and th- this, the way the movie begins mm-hmm. kind of turned me off to it immediately. Oh, didn't want to hear that. So, <laughs> listen, it, it's, the movie looks great. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's it's hyper stylized. It's uh, got a lot of camera movement. Mm-hmm. The colors are great. Like visually, everyone is. It looks cool. Right. The movie itself tries to look cool. Right. And uh, Doug Young is the uh, screenwriter in right. this, and he's gone on to do a a, a bunch of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. He's a few episodes of Mine Hunter. Um, he did a few episodes of Big Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's he's he wrote Star Trek Beyond. Yep. And the Cloverfield Paradox. Like he's written a bunch of stuff that mm-hmm. that is pretty good. Yeah. And so, you know, I always am reluctant to 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 shit on someone's work, and I'm not shitting on this work. But my takeaway from this movie is this is Ocean's Eleven mm-hmm. at about. A three out of ten in terms of like its sense of style and right. confidence and cool. Mm-hmm. It's a pale imitation. It's almost like a con of the audience into thinking you're getting mm. a proper heist movie. Yeah, that's that's really what I was worried about when <laughs> when I gave you this film. I I, I, I thought that it, if anything, it was just going to be a little bit too simple for you, and uh, the way that they laid it out, kind of doesn't leave much to the imagination and if you leave if you read any of the reviews on it that's exactly what they say they say it looks great it, the everybody's acting their parts perfectly you believe in you believe in these characters the story though is just missing that one thing and when it comes to a mystery film like this it's really missing missing the mystery because it gives it to you for, at the at the at the get-go and yeah. working in reverse kind of goes against the film yeah, ex- that's exactly what I yeah. thought, and yeah. and it's because it, the, the actors called Paul Giamatti. Always love him when he yeah. shows up. Rachel Rachel Wise, who mm-hmm. for a short time was my girlfriend, right. although she did not she did not know it, nor did she acknowledge it, but Mine she too. was. <laughs> yep, she was great. She was, I, it, that's unusual. We both dated her. Yeah, um, <laughs> but and, and so it has everything that I'm looking for, but I kind of feel like it just never quite gets there. And and you said it's, it's the main reason why is because the movie opens with ed burns looking down at himself and a he he narrates the movie so there's there's a voiceover and there's a belief in in film that if you need to resort to voiceover you're storied and do the job now Hmm. 
That's not necessarily true because Apocalypse Now, uh, Martin Sheen yeah. voices over the entire movie. Right. Um, there are other examples of that where it works. The problem is when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. And not only does the the, the Ed Burns character, Jake Vig, sort of voice over and literally tell the audience, mm -hmm. this is the story. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to con this guy. Mm -hmm. He also breaks the fourth wall at like three minutes in and he talks directly to the audience. And it becomes this weird thing where Ed Burns is looking at the camera and saying, this is how we run the scam, and let yeah. me tell you exactly what's going on. And mm -hmm. the problem with that is, is because you know what the movie is about, you know right. it's about grifters, right. is you expect that even though he's telling you these things, you know that it's going to be bullshit in the end because you're waiting for that twist, which right. at the end I thought was underwhelming, the way they actually kind of you know, spin this out from under Dustin it, Hoffman. I think that, um, okay, so I think you're right. It is underwhelming, um, and, and the, I guess getting into this film, you're getting to the end, you know it's coming, and there's no surprise. That's that's the one thing that I did not like in the film, but like Ocean's Eleven, I did think that it was cool. <laughs> I, loved, I love Ed Burns in this film. I don't like Ed Burns normally i really don't i think i think we spoke about it you know he's he's not high on our list although he's a um he's an independent darling has been for over 30 years so uh you know he's made movies that a lot of people like and uh, small movies this is probably one of his bigger movies that he made uh right after saving private ryan i, I can't remember what else he's done since this to be quite honest with you so you know it, it is underwhelming in that aspect you are correct you know, it's funny you said that because I, I dug into his IMDb because I said, man, Ed, Ed Burns, he's right. he's been around for a while. He's had a hell of a career. Oh, but, yeah. you know, you look at ever since he hit with the Brothers McMullen in yeah. 1995, mm -hmm. there's not a lot that I've seen him in. No. Like no. he's in Saving Private Ryan. I haven't seen him in anything. <laughs> Honestly, um, since, since this, you couldn't tell me something I've seen him in. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looking now. He's in The Holiday. He's in 27 Dresses. Oh, but dresses. Yeah. he hasn't he hasn't been in a movie he hasn't acted in a in a screen movie and then again the the nature of movies and tv and content itself is changing right right but i guess uh last year or two years ago um he did he wrote directed and produced a tv series entitled bridge and tunnel it was yeah. last year okay. and it aired on epics because right. i was wondering where i'd last seen him mm. and it's not a lot of places. And and so there's kind of my beef straight off is this movie came out in 2003. Right. Ocean's Eleven came out in 2001. One. Mm -hmm. It is very hard for any actor to try to step into a role that is clearly the Danny Ocean kind of role right. played by George Clooney right. and to pull off that character to the level of, of panache and suave sophistication mm -hmm. that Clooney brings to Danny Ocean. Do you think that there was a person missing in this film, like Brad Pitt, where he's eating in every single scene? <laughs> would would that have made things so, better? <laughs> all right, so so that's a perfect that's a perfect example of what I think was missing. Right. I I really enjoy Ocean's Eleven, Me but too. if you want to nitpick that plot, mm -hmm. there are there are holes in that script that you can drive a truck through course, in of terms course. of everything that has to happen in order for that scam right. to come off. And I think that in Ocean's Eleven, you have characters as charismatic as Danny Ocean with Brad Pitt and maybe even, I don't know who else, um, 
Oh, I would, I would uh, probably Don, put Don, Don Cheadle, Don Cheadle and, and maybe, Matt Damon, maybe Matt Damon, Elliot I would Gould. say probably the third one. Yeah, but but like the, the characters are just below Danny. And, you know, Brad Pitt and Danny are obviously, are, I mean, um, George Clooney are going to be the uh, the top billing there. And Andy Garcia, you know, carries the film also along with them. So in this film, you know, here I am. I, I love the film. I really do love Confidence. I really do. But yeah, I will nitpick along with you that... You know, other than Jake Vig, who, uh, you know, he plays it very well in this film. There's nobody else that carries it like he like he does. What do you think of Dustin Hoffman? Loved him. <laughs> I loved him in this film. I thought he was uh, I thought he was I loved his manic uh, energy in this film. And it's not something that you've really seen before. I can't t- you know, I, I don't know if you could tell me another role where he played pill-popping, energetic uh, <laughs> uh, gangster. You know, I, did I, you, I, I loved it. Did you see any of the short-lived uh, David Milch series? It might have been David Milch. It might have been David Simon. I'm not sure. Uh, luck about the horse racing industry? Uh, no, but I remember we were talking about that where... where <laughs> Uh, you know, it, terrible. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm giggling at it because uh, it was a few years ago and they shut it down because you know how many horses died in the making of the damn thing. They they finished it after the first seat. Not even they didn't even finish the first season. I don't think uh, they're like we're not coming back. We killed so many horses. Yeah, I mean, we we've learned a lot about the horse racing right. industry exactly. and a lot of horses have died out in California. But right. that showed that Hoffman played a character in that that was a little less than. Uh, this character than the king in, in in this movie. Right. And I almost kind of would welcome that. But then again, the fact that everyone else is sort of underplaying, except maybe, geez, I don't know, except maybe Giamatti, who's mm. always kind of brings a, an energy to any, any role that he's in. Um, I thought that... Yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah. I thought it was just kind of missing something i don't i don't know if the conceit of the of how the movie is framed which is mm. jake vig telling the entire story to morris chestnut as chestnut holds a gun to his head yeah and yeah. <laughs> tough to think that the that the main that the guy telling the story and the main character is going to be dead that by the end of it when when it starts off exactly like this <laughs> yeah and and again you know and here's the problem and and this is kind of what our very meta and hyper self-aware viewing environment. I wonder if this is where sometimes this comes back to haunt us because we've seen these kinds of stories so much that now you're waiting for the twist and you know that Ed Burns is not dead, especially right. considering the opening scene of the movie mm-hmm. where they shoot Paul Giamatti as part of a con that they're running on right. one of the King's accountants. Right. And Giamatti gets up, and you know he's he's wearing a blood pack, and and it's clearly it, it's all part of the part of the grift mm-hmm. that they were running. Right. And so when when they sh- when they open with Jake Vig lying face down and Ed Burns, whose voice doesn't quite suit this kind of character either. It's a little too high pitched. It doesn't quite carry the gravity that I want. Um, well, well, he's not Vin Diesel, <laughs> but and who, but who it, among us is? But it, it's got a little bit of a uh, gravelly uh, tone to it, I think. I mean, I'll tell you what. I know that he's done some voiceover work uh, on some shows um, where you know immediately that it's Ed Burns. So, you know, I kind of mm. like his voice. You know, he, he's All got right, a, he's, he's got a kind of like a I don't give a shit kind of voice, especially in this film. 
He does have a very Long Island, or not a very Long Island, but he does have a faint, he has a Long Island twinge to his voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's distinctive. So I get that. It's just w- when he opens the movie looking down and he's like, so there I am. I'm dead. That's because and because I'm then, a redhead. <laughs> and yeah. And then the immediate next scene is showing how they quote unquote kill Paul Giamatti right. as part of a grift. You immediately know, oh, Ed Burns can't be dead because they ran this fake killing Mm. on the king's accountant and so what that serves to do in my mind is immediately it lessens the stakes because you're fairly sure that ed burns is going to come out of this alive and that this is all part of the scam well i I mean i i agree with everything you said and this is going to be the one complaint uh you know because it did get pretty high reviews uh you know three out of four stars and most of the reviews and 80% 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, which means that it's it's fairly well-reviewed. But it is, that was the one uh, big knock on this film. I will say, though, that, you know, the, the style of it, the way it was presented, to me, it was fun. You know, and I, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate that they, you know, it wasn't all that serious. And, and I think it was in the vein of Ocean's Eleven, like you said. And... Um, I appreciated that I had a good time watching this film and you know, it didn't take itself too seriously. No. And that's fine. And and I'm okay with it. The only thing is for a movie like this, you need to latch on to someone, right? You, like we care about Danny oceans, Danny ocean pulling this off right. because you want him and Julie Roberts to end up together. Right. And everyone in that crew in their own way is charming and unique and yes they're they're criminals but they're stealing from a, an even bigger criminal so right. you got that whole sort of almost robin hood vibe going on mm-hmm. yeah and you can just kind of connect with them and you latch on to them and and with this because because burns is sort of telling you the story mm-hmm. it almost becomes like a perfunctory exercise where yeah going through the paces yeah it's like this is a story and we're just going to tell it to you because that's what the script demands. Mm-hmm. And I never was sitting there and found myself rooting Ripped. for anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I get you. I mean, they did they they did pull uh, the Andy Garcia character. I thought it was great. <laughs> I mean, did you see that coming? I mean, did you did you see him being? Uh, Part of the whole no. drift. No, I, I didn't. No, so I'd I be lying. Play, I, I'd be lying <laughs> if I did. I mean, but again, there are holes in, in all these kinds of movies. There are holes. One one of the tightest con movies mm-hmm. ever, right. I think, is The Usual Suspects. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the con that's being run is on the audience mm-hmm. because the first time I saw Usual Suspects in the theater, me and two friends way back, I think in like '95, whenever it came out, yep. we were convinced that Gabriel Byrne was everybody was you know and i saw this the other day uh, jason it's so funny you bring this up that gabriel byrne was convinced that he was kaiser soze until it yes. was edited in a different way and he was shocked that it turned out to be the way it was and that's brian singer at his best and perhaps only only best part of his uh career if uh, you really look at it so uh he did he did a fantastic job conning everybody all the yeah, and uh, I think that screenplay was written by Chris McQuarrie, who's gone on to right. pretty much run the Mission Impossible franchise. And <laughs> right. McQuarrie's McQuarrie also wrote The Way of the Gun, which I love with uh, 
Ryan Philippe and Benicio del Toro. But um, it's funny you say that because the best part of that movie to me was the first two and a half minutes when Sarah Silverman gets it right in the nose. <laughs> so, that, yeah, I, I enjoyed um, that part. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I enjoy the rest of the movie too. But mm-hmm. like, I feel like in order to pull off a movie like this, you have to. You either have to have such an overwhelming sense of style mm-hmm. and confidence, literally confidence, right, right. where the audience is willing to overlook whatever plot holes, or the fact that the plot in this one is, I, I don't, I, it's strange because the plot is being explained to you, literally Ed Burns is explaining to everyone yeah. all the time exactly what they're going to do, and yet I still couldn't understand what was going on in Belize, why a credit union in Belize would have five million cash on hand. Like it, the, the oh, it, is a, it is a country. I mean, why wouldn't they have that? No, money? <laughs> no, I get, but it's an individual credit union. You walk into walk into a bank in this country, a first world country, mm-hmm. and try to cash a check for five million dollars. Right. I doubt highly you could do it. But and and you can do it in in Belize apparently, and maybe that's because we're led to believe that Belize is like a a hotbed of money laundering. Maybe, you know that maybe. that might play. But the actual mechanics of the scam that they're running on the king mm-hmm. I were equally explained to me, yeah. over-explained, and mm-hmm. also under-explained at the same time. Okay. So you, being who you are, and uh, you are you know knee-deep in mystery, noir, and criminal um, um, movies and writings through the years, if you were anybody else... Do you think that this movie would have been too simple for you? Is it because that you are just so adept at reading these films that that it just didn't grab you like I was hoping it would? No, I'm not even pretending to be I'm, I'm adept. I'm not great at like seeing these twists coming. I'm mm. I'm really not. And I'm not saying that that I can unpack these movies uh quicker than the average bear because i can't mm-hmm. um but because i let myself go and if a movie grabs me i'll just let myself go and i'll buy it and like mm-hmm. i said oceans 11 you know the there are plot holes in that movie <laughs> yeah. i didn't i i'm not saying i understood if you asked me to un, to explain to mm-hmm. you right, right now and to the audience mm-hmm. what the scam is ed burns runs on the king involving this fake company and they get a loan from robert forrester who by the way doesn't get anything to do he just he's in the back of a limo and then he takes a phone call yeah pretty much (laughs) and and that seems that seems criminal when you have someone a presence as powerful as robert forrester Mm -hmm. and all he's able to do is speak on the phone twice um i mean so i mean let's get into it real quick so the scam is well basically edward edward burns Pulled a grift and he basically stole money from the king unknowingly. King wants the money back, or he's going to kill him. And um, this this yeah. is the plot of the Sting, by the way. <laughs> you know, I never really saw the Sting, so uh, only bits and pieces. So, and oddly yeah. enough, just real quick for the listeners, the the Sting, the 1973 movie, the Sting, the producers were sued by a writer mm. who claimed. His story was the uh, the sting was lifted from his nonfiction story about two grifters that he wrote in 1940. So the sting is a movie about people lying and cheating. They were sued. Universal paid out three hundred thousand dollars to the writer, and now this movie comes along, kind of lifts from the sting. But okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> that's just to say where the world we're in. But go yeah. ahead. 
so Dustin Hoffman, uh, the king, wants his money back, wants the vig on it. So Jake has to run a scam for him. He agrees to it, and you know he wants to be out from underneath the the king's thumb, and he agrees to it. And uh, but the king wants him to do it on uh, uh, Robert Forster's character, who he for whatever reason doesn't like. Uh, that that I can't remember. I think it's some kind of personal vendetta against uh, Robert Forster's character. So he wants to be able to. He wants uh, Jake Vig to run a grift on Robert Forrester's character and get $5 million for the king. And uh, that's the plot of the story. How he goes about it is, you know, cool to me. How he gets his, his band together. How he brings in Lily, Rachel Wise's character. Because they need that one female in, in, the, uh, in the group. Yeah. Um, she, by yeah. the way, she, she lifts his wallet outside a nightclub and... He goes back to that nightclub and finds her the very next time he, he he's there, like in a city in Los Angeles, city of untold millions. I don't know how many million people live in L.A. Right. And he goes to the same nightclub uh, one other time, right. and sure enough, she's there, and he's able to recruit her. Right. Well, let's put it this way: if you're good at what you do, you can go back to the same place. So, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Uh, you know. Um. <clears throat> Um, what did you think of the smaller character? So Paul Giamatti played uh, basically like the second in command, you know, the the the, the lieutenant. I'm going to say that from now on. But it's, not, it's no longer lieutenant, it's lieutenant. And yeah, very um, British of you. Yes, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I figured you'd like that. And, uh, you know, what about the... This is the one part that's very cliche in these films, and you have the crooked cops in this in this film, like you have in a lot of other Griff films, uh, mystery films. There's always like uh, a couple of cops on the take to help uh, help uh, uh, get the story going. What do you think about Donald Logue and Louise Gozman? I liked them fine. Like, there's no one here. Like, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting. I'm I'm, I'm not coming here. My, Michael Pena and Donald Logue are always fun when they show up, and. Right. You know, there's nothing they do wrong. Pena always has sort of a... Uh, Pena, I'm sorry. Ver- Luis Guzman. Oh, why am I thinking Michael? I'm thinking Michael Pena. Yeah, Luis Guzman. I'm yeah, sorry. Right. Michael Pena uh, is the Luis Guzman of the 2010s. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, so Luis Guzman, he's always fun. And you always enjoy him when he shows up. Right, like, there's right. no one here that I'm sitting I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, the hell with this. I'm, I'm out on that guy. Okay, that's it, fine. It, it all just felt very... Very rote and very formulaic and mm. very much like we're doing this thing because we have to do this thing. Okay. Um, and, y- you know, it's th- th- it's odd because James Foley, I'd never heard of him. And you mentioned oh, yeah. that he had, I think the way you introduced him last week was saying that he directed two of the Fifty Shades uh, movies. Yeah, so uh, Glenn, uh, uh, Glenn Foley has had quite the career. Um, uh, started- James Foley. Yeah, I'm sorry, James Foley. I apologize. Glenn and, Foley uh, was the musician from the '80s, right? Uh, Glenn the, uh, Be- mm. Beverly Hills Cop. I think he was the Axel, or Axel Foley. Axel that was Foley. Axel Foley. Yeah. God damn, we are just we are hemorrhaging <laughs> listeners we're right tired. now. We're tired, folks. We apologize. <laughs> but he he started out with Reckless in 1984, directing that film, and you know a couple of years later, doing Madonna's Who's That Girl? Not a very good movie, and out of nowhere. That directs a great film, Glengarry Glenn Ross, 1992, yeah. Al Pacino, Alec Baldwin. I mean, I mean, it's everybody knows who's in this film. It, it, you know, it was amazing. So, from his start to the middle of his career, you would never think that he would get to Glengarry Glenn Ross. And then it kind of goes down a little bit, comes back a little bit with confidence, in my opinion. 
And I'm sorry, but I mean, he either did it for the money, or he knew that his career was over. But he finished the uh, the la- he finished out the decade of the 2010s with Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades Freed. Hey, now, listen, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fault him. Yeah, no, me neither. I mean, I, but you you kind of like that that is a roller coaster of a career. <laughs> so um, the only thing that perhaps maybe you would like is that in 1991 he directed an episode of Twin Peaks which I know that you loved the uh, the uh, the show back in uh, back then. He unfortunately did, uh, one episode. Yeah, but unfortunately he did episode uh, 17 of season 2 which okay. is deep into the when David Lynch was uninvolved and it's it's a, it's the dark times right, for okay. Twin Peaks fans. All right, well, but again, then, I'm not going to fault like that him. either. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, it looks like he did uh, he did a bunch of these sort of uh 90s um thrillers like Fear and oh, The Chamber yeah, yeah. and The Corrupter. Mm-hmm. So uh, like you know, capable hand. Also he directed I didn't know this. He's directed like 12 episodes of House of Cards way back. Yes, yes. And he was on uh, also Hannibal and he did two of uh, Billions a few years back. So I mean, he's he's definitely kept busy and Obviously, if he's still working in the last few years with big budget films, and that's what these are, Fifty Shades, the Fifty Shades franchise, whatever you think about it, did make money, and the, you know, money was spent on making them. So they, he's got capable hands. Yeah, you know, and I don't fault um, the look of this movie or the way it's shot. Like, there's a lot of whip pans uh, from scene to scene. The camera's always sliding left right. to right, right to left, right. and and I'm not faulting anything with how I thought it was shot. I think it looks great. Um, I think there are some logical problems. I think mm-hmm. that these five grifters spend a lot of time on Los Angeles streets, all five of them, <laughs> looking real suspicious sure outside <laughs> of outside of a bank building as they decide who they're going to con. And of course, they end up uh, they end up choosing. Um, oh, who is the actor who played? Oh yeah, he is. Um, how come they don't show it here on IMDb? Yeah, you have to go into the other side. But basically, the actor who played the likely Zodiac killer in <laughs> David Fincher's movie Zodiac, right, 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 um, who's perfectly cast, mm-hmm. uh, is the bank manager, right, um, in at the bank run by Robert Forster, whose father mm-hmm. was a mob lawyer. It's mm-hmm. all very John yeah, Carroll Lynch. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't give him his due. John Carroll Lynch yeah, plays yeah. that role. Oh, crazy stupid love. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah he's, he's the, the he's the neighbor girl's father, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But again, my, I I like him and I remember him in Zodiac. Okay. He's awesome in that movie. Zodiac's a great movie. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just I, I I don't know. It's 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 you can't look at this and say it's it's not a movie. Uh, I enjoyed it fine. Okay. But okay. but it's not one of those that. You, this kind of movie has to knock your doors off right. with a reveal, okay. and that's the that's the the hurdle it has to get over. I mean, the reveal was given to you in the first two minutes, so I knew I knew that it was it was going to be difficult. I'm telling you, if it was anybody else, <laughs> it would have been like, "Wow, it was a great movie." In fact, I have given this to people who have ended up buying the DVD because they loved it so much. But you know, I it was it was a fifty fifty chance with you on this one, and I'm and I'm sorry that it, I'm sorry that it fell flat. But uh, eh. you know, I gave it a shot. I gave it a shot. I, you I, know, I the- do want to point out just one particular performance, which I thought was. It was <laughs> Chef Kiss. It was uh, Tom Tiny Lister. Now tell me he did not play the role of a lifetime as as Harlan, the bouncer, you know, um, you know, right hand man of the king, Dustin Hoffman in this film. 
role of a lifetime? Role that's of a, a lifetime. That's a Come bold on. statement. I, <laughs> he, I mean, listen. That guy a, had a long career. Like, he, he shows up in a lot of movies. Right. Okay. And what do you know him for? Um, let me see. Oh, first uh, the thing. fifth element. First thing. The fifth element. <sighs> no. You don't. You know him as no, Debo. No, I do. You you know him as Debo, not as the president of the fifth element, okay? Everybody, I, yes, of course, I know him from that, too. You know, you ask most people if they just don't, you know, they don't, probably don't even know his name. Just give him the face. And they say, oh, that's Debo from Friday, <laughs> okay? So, oh, yeah, that's true. That's yeah, true. Exactly, that's true. So all of a sudden, he comes out with this. Oh, this great, this great part for him. Oh, I loved it. Are you kidding me? It's, this was his best role. Well, that's <laughs> we agree to disagree. I liked him as I also liked him as tattooed prisoner in The Dark Knight. He was he was very good as tattooed prisoner. Oh God, I forgot he was in that that film. So, my takeaway from Confidence, like I said, is a movie like this has to be if you're if you're relying on style. Right. Then the style has to be all in. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to point out on mm-hmm. this. Okay, the reason why confidence doesn't quite work for me okay. is if you're going to do a gritty crime movie about terrible people, right. even though they're you know the Ed Burns and his his crew are likable terrible people, they're still you know they're still grifters. Right. This is a knock that I always have with these kinds of movies. In the opening scene, in order to show how Dustin Hoffman is kind of a crazy sex fiend, he oh owns a strip club, oh and he has these two girls. He has these two girls dancing as an audition in the background. Okay, Ugh. and the girls are in like underwear or or bikini, like underwear, like like yeah. bra and panties. Yeah. All right. And my thing is. If you're showing this world and you want to show how terrible a person Dustin Hoffman is because he yells at the girls for doing a particular thing to each other that you don't really see. It's only intimated. Right, right. And the problem is is that the girls are throughout, they are clothed. Now, I'm not arguing for the objectification of women for its own sake. Right. But if you're going to give me a character who runs a strip joint and then the females that are in that strip joint are always clothed, Mm -hmm. you are sanding off the rough edges of your movie okay, okay. you're making it mm-hmm. you're making it an nbc a nine o'clock nbc mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. instead of a sunday night hbo show okay it's funny i didn't think that that was going to be the complaint you were going to have i thought the complaint was going to be their sisters <laughs> they weren't he and even he says dustin hoffman says you need a new act because they're they don't mm-hmm. look like sisters and the whole thing is that they they're doing stuff to each. it's such a minor point but it mm-hmm. illustrates my problem with the character mm-hmm. is you need to hate this character right away right. this character needs to be enmeshed in a disgusting world you know where i just saw this on and it works so much better mm-hmm. and it's it, the show is bleak as fuck so i can't in good conscience recommend it okay Taylor Sheridan uh, did a show called Mayor of Kingstown that right. I've spoken to you right. a yep. few times. And it is relentlessly uh, hardcore in every way. People get killed. Um, there's strippers. Mm-hmm. There's uh, People do awful things to each other. Kyle Chandler gets his head blown off in the yeah. opening episode. Wow. It's, it's a brutal show. Mm-hmm. This is trying to be brutal, but it's afraid to take that last step. And... Yes, it's a small thing, but I feel like it's indicative of holding oneself back. Now, Taylor Sheridan is also the guy who brought you the family-friendly Yellowstone, correct? <laughs> I wouldn't call Yellowstone family-friendly. No. Uh, he also he also wrote three of my favorite movies, Sicario, mm-hmm. um, Wind River, mm-hmm. and shoot, 
Wind River I'm blanking was, on Wind River was very good. We've spoken about that film. We're, Jeremy we're, Renner. We're big fans of uh, Jeremy Renner and uh, Elizabeth Olsen. So uh, we we definitely are good, definitely good job with that. Uh, but for another time. Uh, yeah. All right. So confidence. You know, I'm sorry that uh, it was a uh, a miss for you. I was very excited giving you this because I uh, when you said you'd never even heard of it, I, I thought there was a good chance there. But it's okay. They they can't all be winners. Nope. Hey, who would have thought going into this that the only movie you've assigned me that I really didn't connect with on any way was going to be a, a, a grifter crime film because that's right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. Fast Five was more, uh, it, you know, it touched your soul more than this one, it seems. But <laughs> you know, irony. if that I, is irony, yeah, that and that shows that's that this this experiment is working. Yeah, my absolutely. my horizons are being broadened, and so. Mm-hmm. My whole beef, like I said, is that this movie has to be hyper-stylized right, for it to right. work. Okay. Did you see mm-hmm. this week a movie that was hyper-stylized? Oh, <laughs> man, oh, man. I did. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you call it hyper-stylized, though. I mean, I mean, I always take it as uh, being a little bit uh, hyper-stylized to be a little bit more bright not, and, and loud. Uh, not I, visually. Yeah, okay, okay. So if we're talking about dialogue, then yes, the movie from Ryan Johnson's director, directorial debut in 2006, The Brick, would definitely be hyper Not The Brick, just Brick. Excuse me, Brick. You've already, you've already corrected I've, me I've, that I've, three times. Yeah, I corrected you once before. <laughs> God damn it. We are professional podcasters. <laughs> brick. I apologize. And yes. Um, and, and okay, so right off the bat, I enjoyed the film. So, which is more than you got out of confidence. I enjoyed this film. However, it really took me about five or ten minutes of listening to these the dialogue before I realized two things. <laughs> that I did not understand what they were saying. And yep. because, because I... Uh, I guess the easiest way of putting it is almost like it was out of sync with who was saying it. Okay, the yes. words were coming out, but you are seeing these fresh-faced high schoolers speaking as if they were Philip Marlowe and and Humphrey Bogart from the fifty, the forties and fifties. True, hard-boiled detective type, um, you know, actors who spoke these phrases, words, these the, these. The, the 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 speech of the time and in the films anyway I doubt people were walking around speaking like that but maybe they were and that to me threw me off to the point that I had to turn on the subtitles <laughs> again you're giving me a film where I have to turn on the subtitles to understand what was happening and most of the time I'm reading the subtitles and I love what they're saying it's so cool but the, these these guys these people that I've seen through the 1990s and early 2000s, fresh-faced people like, um, uh, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, like, yeah, jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Lucas Haas. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, um, and and who else had I seen? Um, I I seen uh, Noah F- uh, Fl- Fleiss uh, as Noah Tugger. Fleiss. Yeah. Yep. I, I've seen these people, and I've seen what they've done. And, and you know, when you're talking about kids, they grew up as actors in the '90s. You, you know, we remember what people spoke like back then, and their mannerisms. And for them to start speaking like this, it, to me, Jason, it brought back a film which I enjoyed um, back in 1996, Baz Luhrmann's um, Romeo and Juliet, with uh, you know, 
with DiCaprio uh, and Claire Dane. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that they spoke, it was a modern take on on the Bard's tale of love and, and loss. And you know, here you are. You know, they're in Miami with the the cool cars and the tattoos and the nightclubs and everything like you would see today. But they're talking like they're from the 14th century, and it 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 immediately brought that uh, that image back to me when I was watching this. That's the reason why I I gave you this movie. I first saw this. I caught this on cable back before streamers were around, and I don't remember where I caught it, but I caught it about ten or fifteen minutes in, right. and I heard some of the dialogue, and it drew my ear, and then it drew my eye, and mm-hmm. I was just. I just sat there and I had to watch this movie. And like you, mm-hmm. I had no clue what was going on initially. And I've seen this movie a few times. It was right. just added to the Criterion Collection, did a neo-noir mm-hmm. uh, series. And they added it. They included it in that collection. And it harkens back to the books by Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and, mm-hmm. and his most famous character, Philip Marlowe, Marlowe. Yep. Mm-hmm. where people spoke in a very like you said there's a very particular cadence ma- yeah, yeah, yeah a very particular cadence and manner of speech and everyone is very intelligent it's kind of like Aaron Sorkin before Aaron Sorkin right and when you take that sensibility and you drop it into an unnamed high school in California right it, there it, it's either you're either going to be all in on this experiment on this movie as an experiment or you're going to think it's ridiculous and i'm glad you were willing to oh, yeah, kind of no, let absolutely. yourself go I, I i listen i enjoy i enjoy those type of films I, i've seen them you know the philip marlowe with um what one of our favorite actors who passed away a few years ago um help me out we we we, we love the guy uh, Powers Booth. There you go. I mean, I, I saw his Philip Marlowe yes. on HBO back in the day, and you, you hear them talking about, you know, Dame this, and uh, you know, the, the way that they would, um, you know, be talking to each other. It's just, it, it was cool to me, you know, and it was an underground, gritty kind of um, uh, cool language that you know I would never talk, but it was it was cool to listen to. It just threw me off that, you know, sweet angel face, George, uh, jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt from Third Rock of the, from the Sun was the one saying this stuff. And he was the basically the hard-boiled detective in this film, even though he was probably only ele- in 11th grade, you know. So yeah. I, it, it, it definitely threw you off. It was definitely experimental. But as we know from Ryan Johnson, the, you know, the guy is not afraid to experiment. And people aren't afraid to give him money to experiment, as we've, uh, as we've learned. Do you know that this movie was made for reportedly less than half a million dollars? I did not know that, but let's be honest, where would that money have gone? <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it looks like it. Uh, I mean, like it, visually, it, there's no, it's not Knives Out. It's no. not well, the, Star, the Star Wars movie that he did. Yeah. And it's all spent on, the, where you see the money is essentially on, on the actors who are all, again, like you said, they're teenagers mm-hmm. behaving in this very, in this anachronistic kind of style. Yeah, and they're not word. playing it for laughs. <laughs> everyone's everyone's all in in the world. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and what the, the for what you know you can watch this if 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 you're into what we've said you would watch this. But essentially the plot is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's ex-girlfriend gets killed, mm-hmm. and he takes on unraveling what the story is, right. what the what led her to her death, right. and it, it concerns you know, a kilo or an amount of an unnamed drug. Like there's a lot of, I thought it was heroin. This, 
Yeah, it is, but it's never quite. It my my remembrance is that yeah. it's never quite said like every. So this movie is the opposite of confidence, right? In confidence, you have Edward Burns right. literally talking to the camera, saying, "This is mm-hmm. what we do. This is how we do it." In Brick, mm-hmm. no one is helping the viewer. No. And yeah. the, 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 the language is almost a barrier to the viewer being able to understand or enjoy the movie. Oh. But if you, <laughs> yeah. if, you're, if you let yourself go like you did and you're yeah. kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm going to concentrate and I'll figure it out, you, you can be drawn along on a pretty compelling story. Yes, told. absolutely. It, totally 100%. A uh, total 180 from confidence, whereas, I, like, like I said... Totally spoon-fed to you. There are no spoons to be found anywhere on this set. They were feeding no. people with knives because yes. you know, nobody ate. Let me put it to you that way. And and, and as a um, as a viewer, you're definitely not eating on this one. You are you're getting strung along. And anybody who watches this film, and I and I suggest you do, but please turn on the subtitles. And even then, it may not be enough. And you may have to do a second viewing of the film to really. Uh, at least know what's coming, and you know if you're listening to the dialogue, you'll 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 get everything a little bit more. I thought um, I thought it was very well done. It was, and you know something I haven't said in a while, but it was really smart too. It, and yeah, and, and it wasn't. Um, I, I don't know. It 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 wasn't a parody. It which it, it could very easily have been a parody Did- of. Of uh, of those type of films, you know, and, and just drop it in a high school helicopter, you know, it, it was basically in the in a um, unnamed high school that all the lockers are outside, so kind of looked like Greece, you know, it could have been could have been anything like that at any point, but it definitely wasn't. So I thought it was just so smart and well done, and um, you know, it, it was there were, there were no colors to it. There were no. It was. It was very uh, monotone. It's very washed out looking. Very, yeah. Very washed out. In fact, it, I, I saw, and you you understand this better than I do. But it was. Um, the, uh, it was filmed on thirty five millimeter uh, yep. film, which does that. And um, you know, it's the music, the, the 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 tones of the film, the colors of the film. It's all very muted, and it really just f- it helps you focus on the. Um, performance that the actors are giving you and 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 the dialogue which the dialogue is the star of this film as far as I'm concerned it's also a, a film that's hyper that's incredibly surreal and I am drawn to the surreal I, I love David Lynch I love right. Nicholas Winding Refn mm-hmm. but there's so many aspects of this movie that just kind of skirt our reality the idea of the the pin lucas haas's character riding around in the back of a van that has a <laughs> table a, lamp a set table up in lamp. it or shag he lives car- i think he, it had shag carpet too. shag carpeting <laughs> he lives with his mother his office mm-hmm. is in the basement of this suburban home and his mother's making at one point she makes all the gang members that are meeting cereal. together <laughs> cereal and she's given orange juice yeah. And it kind of exists in this world that is reminiscent of our world, but also not quite our world. Right. And and, and even at the very end, when, when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character uh, explains the entire story to uh, the, the... Oh, man. I'm Laura. I'm my mind here. Laura. To Laura. Is, right, yeah. When he explains to Laura exactly what happened, which, of course, includes, hey, you were involved in this. Right. The first time I saw it, when he says, "Here, let me run it back for you from the top," right? I had no clue what was going on. Uh, yeah. He's explaining the movie to me, as opposed to Ed Burns saying, doing the exact same thing. But Ed Burns' character is speaking 
in a very straightforward manner and, right. and Joseph Gordon Levitt is challenging the viewer and I like being challenged. And that's, I, I think, why I love this movie. But he did it so easily, too. And that's that's how great of an actor he is. And I and I and I love him. He's done. He did Looper. He did the Dark. I Night love Ritu- Looper. Yeah, he he's done some really good films over the last fifteen years. Well, since he became a child star, he is definitely not one that you that ever wasted his talent. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you ever watched Third Rock from the Sun, but he was even good on that show. And um, you know, and 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 Laura Dannon in this film, you know, he's she's the she's the mall, she's the uh, the femme fatale a little bit. You didn't really get that towards until until towards the end, where she was basically the smartest person in the room that was pulling the strings up until you know yeah. Brendan you know figured it all out. So um, you know that was great. I, I tell you another movie that this reminded me of, and if I had to dumb it down a little bit i would say that this is la confidential for high schoolers yes i mean i I would give you that yeah absolutely this is there were so many similarities to me um that that i mean the vice principal principal acts like the police commissioner you know that was great (laughs) the way that they were richard Richard roundtree by the way shaft yeah yeah oh okay that's who that was Yes, I'm that's Richard you, Roundtree I as, as it, Vice Principal Truman. I see it now. You know what? I thought that was Louis Gossett Jr. No, no, Richard Roundtree. Yeah. Shaft. Yeah, wow. Shaft well, is a bad he, man. Yeah, he, he was yeah. yeah, he was great in that film, but I, I loved that dynamic that they had. It was like he was it, it was like uh Brendan Joseph Gordon Levitt's character was on the take tr- playing both sides and and you know, and Truman the, the VP you know, like the police commissioner is trying to, well, he's basically letting some informants out on the street so he can get, you know, the bigger fish, you know, and he, but he says, listen, if I catch you doing it, you're going down. You're going to be the fall guy. And just like you would see in a, in a, in a crime movie, in a mystery, you know, the yeah, movies John- that you like that I like, you know, it's great. Johnson took all the skeleton and the, the motifs and the tropes of the noir film and he just dropped it into a California high school. High school, and absolutely. I think, and I think it works on every level. It's like you said, it's not a self-parody. Uh, it's it's not wink. It's not doing it with a wink and a nod. Everyone in it is committed, and I think for that reason, it works. I think if you try it with a different tone, mm-hmm. and if you try it with this sort of sense of self-awareness, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't work as well. Uh, um, did yeah, to ahead. that end, by the way, when I was doing research for this, I didn't know this, but uh, apparently in 1976, Alan Parker did a, a spoof. Uh, a gangster spoof called Bugsy Malone, which featured children as gangsters, including a 13-year-old Jodie Foster. Mm. Mm. The only reason that I know this... familiar. It, it, I, I, yeah, I never saw it. But the only reason why I know that is because uh, Stephen Holden, in his review for the New York Times of Brick, referenced that movie. And by the really? way, Stephen Holden of the New York Times did not like Brick at all. Really? But yeah. Okay. Yeah, apparently there's a 13-year-old Jodie Foster in a uh, in a spoof of a gangster film from 1976 that I've never seen. To be quite honest with you, I always thought the Little Rascals were more of a spoof of gangster films back in the day. <laughs> you know, never never liked the Little Rascals. Never watched them. Never cared yeah, it's for them. Right, you know, 80s. Yeah. It was a little bit of my uh, early 80s youth. You know, it was on uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon. Whenever you come home from school, you watch the Little Rascals. 
yeah, I get that. So regarding Brick, I've, 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 I want to go down two roads with this. Okay. okay. The first is related to Ryan Johnson because Brick mm-hmm. is a very complicated story. The right. the whole how it unravels and how Brendan, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, kind of figures it out and he explains the story. I feel like that is that very complicated solution to the problem is setting up the foundation for what Ryan Johnson would do in Knives Out. Okay. Did you like Knives Out? I did like Knives Out. Um, my one, my one critique of Knives Out is that it was it got too convoluted to get to uh, the person who was really responsible for everything. Yes, that, and that's my that one thing. Like, like it, it just way too many twists and turns to get to who we all. And let's be honest, we all thought that that's what it was. I mean, if you haven't seen Knives Out, uh, you know it. It was one of those movies that, again, kind of spoods feeds you a little bit and it gives you all the characters there. You kind of know who it is, but you can't get the proof. And the proof keeps on switching from one place to another to another. Kind of pissed me off. <laughs> My issue with Knives Out, and everyone loved Knives Out, right? Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. I've seen it like three to- three times because I want to love it. Mm-hmm. And my problem with it is the is what you just articulated. Mm-hmm. It is almost too clever for its own good. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a director who had too much time on their hands, and 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 we've seen we've spoken about directors or, or shows that they're just trying to be too too smart. For, they they want to be the smartest people in the room, and they want to say, "Hey, come look at us," you know. And uh, you know, what show did we uh, watch? Westworld. Westworld. You know, Westworld. We were all in on the first season, but towards the end, we're like. All right, and then, you know, I know you gave up maybe after the second season. I, I went into no, the no, third. I, <laughs> I, I, I hate watch the second season. Yeah, and right, right, again, right. again, um, uh, Jonah Nolan and his wife, uh, right. who, who did that, that series. Really good filmmakers, but I felt like Westworld was an example, and Knives Out is also to an extent. It's an example of a writer or a director being more interested in telling a story in a clever manner right. rather than telling a clever story. Okay. Well, it makes and, perfect sense over there. Yeah, well, so West, Westworld cared more about, like, look at how intelligent we are. We're going to run multiple timelines, mm-hmm. and we're not going to tell you. And Ed Harris is in the future, but he's also in the past, and right. he's the black hat and the white hat. Mm-hmm. And it, it, they fell in love with their own storytelling, mode of storytelling. Right. That was my beef with Westworld. And kind of with Knives Out is... That end solution, when I saw that the second time, Nicole sat, my wife sat with, through it with me twice. Mm-hmm. And the second time, after it was over, she turned to me and she said, couldn't Christopher Plummer have waited 10 minutes to see if, <laughs> if she was really, if she'd really given him the wrong medication? Yeah, yeah. Because Plummer goes from zero to I'm going to slash my own throat in like 34 seconds. Listen, and... and <laughs> As a way of suicide, that is one of the hardest ways to go. <laughs> oh, oh my God! He's like, yeah. I'm gonna run this knife across my carotid artery, and I'm just gonna bleed out. You need to get out of here. Like, I, I, again, I, the solution to knives out just didn't work. the The actual experience is really enjoyable, right? And it's I, fun. it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun movie. I'm not shitting on the movie. I, but like I said, I was curious if your reaction to it was the same as mine. I, I think the best part of the movie is the cast of characters. It's uh it, it's like Clue, 
you know, 1985's Clue. Not a great movie, but everybody remembers it from from the cast of characters that were in it and, you know, the 14 different endings that were uh, all filmed. So that was pretty cool, too. But uh, yeah. that's the only thing that was missing in this film. Um, but, you I, know, I had, yeah, go ahead. I had one other question for yeah, you, and this is related to Brick. Since we've, we've, we've swerved off of the actual movie we're supposed to be talking about, the, the character of the brain... Right. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna posit a theory to you. Okay. Okay. That character exists only in Brendan's head. Ooh. Discuss. Oh man. Okay. I didn't think of it. Um, I actually thought that Brain might have been the brains behind the whole thing, and perhaps um, was the uh, you know the true villain of the piece. So at one point, that's what I was thinking, and a, a, by the um, by the last third of the film, I realized that it wasn't going to be him. Uh, the way that you bring it up, is it him? Is he real or is he not? Um, I would say that he is. You know, he's really the only person. Now, you know what? Uh, I was going to say pre- he's, he's the only person who really interacts with uh, Brendan's character. Or Brendan is the only person that really interacts with him, but he's he. There, there was a couple of times where he was able to get notes from people to give to Brendan. So, I, I believe there okay. was interaction at some point or other with other other actors, but not on camera. Not and on camera. No. My, my big my so two things is you don't see the brain interact on camera with anyone other than Brendan. Right. Okay, and at the very end when Brendan is on the football field, the brain appears. In the background, out of nowhere, and he, and he literally the way the the way the the scene is shot, you have Joseph Gordon Levitt's head very much in the foreground, mm-hmm. and from his ear, yeah. the brain mm-hmm. steps literally steps out of Joseph Gordon Levitt's head. They have an interaction, and then the brain disappears. And he, back he, into, he keeps on saying, "Go to sleep," almost like yes, like he's speaking to his own brain, saying, "All right, you've done enough now. Just calm down, relax, and." You know, let the body uh, rest right now. I, I mean, listen, I see it. Is, is there something out there that you've seen this uh, particular uh, theory on, or is this something that you just come up with? It's something that I've always thought about. I haven't really done any research into it. I'm um, curious. I mostly, yeah, I mostly looked up some of the reviews for this. I haven't seen too many think pieces because, again, this was a fairly low budget movie right. uh, that came out 15 years ago now. But that's always been a theory of mine. And I don't have... Most of the theories I espouse, other smarter people have come up with. Well, that's all. But this one is mine. (laughs) Okay, good. Not a problem. I will look it up after we're done. (laughs) This will be my UCLA film school dissertation, (laughs) is the brain was not real, and I'm going to write 140 pages on the reason why. You know who I felt bad for in this film, Brick? I felt bad for Brad Bramish. I mean, why didn't didn't the coach just put him in? Why didn't... (sighs) Look at the big brain on Brad. Yeah, why? Did, you know, don't go. Don't come. You know, if they lose, don't come to Brad because <laughs> you didn't no. play him. Why are you not playing Brad? You know, no. Uh, that was an annoying little piece, and I'm glad he got his comeuppance in that uh, particular uh, part in the parking lot. So that was uh, that was very cool. Um, this film is something that I, I believe um, a person, a director like Quentin Tarantino would have uh, influenced, you know, Ryan Johnson's making of this film. As we know, Quentin Tarantino is a master of dialogue, not so much as, um, in, in like like in this film, the, the dialogue you heard in this in this film was a little bit 
much more obtuse <laughs> than you've heard in Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction had really cool uh, dialogue, also, you know, Daddio and Square and stuff like that that you you don't you never heard in 1994, but you thought was cool. You had heard it, you know, previously, and and he took all of all of the influences that he got in the, from the 60s and 70s pulp films and everything, and he put it together in Pulp Fiction. And I see it really uh, as a big influence on Ryan Johnson here. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that, except I think Quentin is doing something different. Quentin is not playing with language necessarily. I think Quentin is playing with what is allowed in a movie. Mm. I think the fact that he opens Reservoir Dogs with an extended <laughs> debate as to the, uh, the, the phallic symbolism <laughs> of Madonna's Like a Virgin. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And you're sitting there and you're almost wondering like, wait, this can be done in a movie and not not for the not for the fact that it's about uh what they're discussing but the fact that they're not talking about what is going on in the movie they're literally just people sitting around shooting the shit right right and in in that it's also it also reveals character and you get a little bit about harvey keitel and mm -hmm. you get a little bit about uh lawrence block's character who's mm -hmm. running the gig and right. i think i think quentin i think quentin doesn't necessarily play with the nature of words of dialogue although um brad pitt's character in inglorious bastards has a very particular way of speaking right i think it's more about like quentin pushes the envelope in terms of what can be on screen mm -hmm. and if it oh if everything has to be relevant to the story because i don't i think he he cares more about dialogue being relevant to the character i i, I agree I agree 100%. And he definitely uh, pushes the boundaries. He always has since since uh, since uh, that opening scene, which, by the way, you know, I mean, I never really thought of it the way that, uh, you know, uh, Nice Guy Eddie had brought it, uh, had brought it up that that's what Madonna was singing about. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I, we grew up with that with that song, didn't we? I never really thought that that's what it was about. <laughs> Her have, first, you, you know. have you ever heard Quentin Tarantino's theory that Top Gun is about latent homosexuality. No, but you know, now that you bring it up, that uh, that oiled I, up uh, uh, volleyball scene was a little was uh, was a little uncomfortable when they were flexing. <laughs> I'm not sure because I haven't seen it in a long time. Really? I think I think he appears as an actor. I don't want to say it's because I know he wrote True Romance, and I don't know if it's in there. But somewhere along the way, Quentin Tarantino, it might be in a movie or it might be himself as the director, mm. uh, filmmaker, that um, he, he has a theory that Top Gun is actually about uh, uh, gay men trying to come to terms with their own latent homosexuality. And I think, you know, if he's able to see things where other people don't, but if they're compelling and mm. there's evidence for it, yeah, I'll take the ride. Right, right. I, I know what scene you're talking about. I, I forgot that that's what um, it was. Christian Slater talking to some guy right outside, like the hot dog hut or something that they were or yes. hamburger hut. Um, that wasn't Quentin Tarantino. Uh, that was somebody but he else. Wrote, that, that he was, wrote that. Yeah, yes, he did. He did write. He he. Quentin Tarantino okay. says that that was one of his favorite ever uh, scripts that he wrote up until you know it, it, throughout the 2000s. He would always say that. But that Great was a movie. different character. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But all right. So I, I I got it wrong. You you unpacked that one for me. Right, yeah. So uh, yeah. But uh, kind of funny, man. We end up with two two very different takes on the crime genre right, from right. more or less the same time period, two thousand three mm -hmm. and two thousand six. And uh, 
I, once again, I'm disappointed. You got the, you I, got I, the better. Yeah. Well, I did get the better, but I, I still disappointed. I really wanted to, really wanted you to love it. You know, let's put it that way, or or at least say, hey, you know, I had a good time. You know, and uh, I'm I didn't, disappointed I didn't have in a, that. I didn't have a bad time. Yeah. It's just not. It's just not my thing. And again, okay. it's not a knock on on people in terms of of the quality of what they make. It's just whether or not I respond to it, and mm-hmm. you know, I just didn't respond to it. Okay, all right. So, but that's what we're here for. Um, we keep going. Yeah, absolutely, on we go. On we go. We all keep right. on going. And speaking of which, yes, yes. Where are you sending me next week? Okay, well, this one I am sending you. We're, we're, this is the beginning of the end for you in the MCU, and uh, this is actually going to be a uh, a little bit of a uh, a, a double challenge. Um, you've mentioned a few times that uh, your wife Nicole has watched some films that I have given you. Uh, with you and uh, seeing as how she enjoyed spider-man with you i'm hoping that you will be able to watch uh avengers infinity war together with her uh as it leads also into Endgame that you'll watch uh two weeks later and um you know since uh, she has some backstory now and you have a lot of backstory and on these characters and you know how how the actors have played them how they've you know grown and the, the 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 strife that you've been seeing over the last two or three movies, this is where it all comes together, and I'm I'm really curious to see how you and and her will, are are going to take this film. So uh, Avengers: Infinity War for you and your wife, if possible. So I finally get to Josh Brolin. You finally get to Josh Brolin, and. Again, you know, and, and as everybody knows, I gave you the ten poles. Uh, I there are lots of movies that you did not see, and uh, you're just going to. <laughs> you may have to uh, Google a few things to see where you're starting off at. Um, you know, w- 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 you basically this picks up right at the end of Thor Ragnarok. In, in fact, if you All wanted right. to just watch the last five minutes of Thor Ragnarok. I think it was the end credit scene no. that would really help. <laughs> no, I'm see that that's my beef right there, yeah. and and I've had a good time with some of these Marvel yeah, movies, yeah. but I am not going to feel obligated to watch another movie in order to enjoy a particular movie. Yeah, and so I, I will watch, watch, and I wouldn't watch it too I've, because because I, I think you really only need five minutes of it to to really just to see. Okay, because you may go into it and you're like, all right, what's happening here? That's you, fine. You'll get it. Let you'll them get it. This, but I mean, you know. You're challenging me to watch Avengers Infinity War. I'm challenging the Marvel creatives to make a standalone, understandable movie that's going to appeal to me. Because that's what they care about with their mountains of money that well, they've gotten. They, they care about whether they or not what I think. <laughs> they did they, last week when you went to go hey, see listen, a, a Spider-Man. I've had, a, I've had largely a positive experience yeah, in the Marvel yeah, Universe. Yeah. I didn't expect it, but I, for the most part, I have. And also... Nicole would argue that she has not watched these movies with me. She has been in the room when those movies have played. There's a difference. <laughs> well, you but, know what? It, it, to, to get a little bit of a different take on it then, I would love to see uh, both of yours. You know, she, and, you know, you can give me a one, one sentence from her and then uh, just tell me, uh, you know, how it went. You know, I'm really looking forward to uh, your reaction to this. So that's uh, I'm challenging you with Avengers Infinity War. All right, challenge accepted. Okay. I will accept it. Okay. I, I feel I feel good about it. Uh, I finally made uh, began a list because I'd been kind of uh, free free free, uh, free something. I've, I've kind of, <laughs> I've kind of been freestyling 
uh, the movies that I pick for you, like in the moment as we get to the end, it, it's more emotional. It's like yeah. a vibe and what I want to go with. But I, I've, I finally started a list. Okay. And I realized we haven't done a foreign movie in a while. Okay. And I'm sending you to Japan. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I'm sending you to arguably one of the greatest directors of all time. Uh, Akira Kurosawa directed a film called High and Low. High and Low, okay. Starring Toshiro Mufuni, um, who is, is probably his great actor, collaborator. Um, it, took, it came out in the 60s. I don't have the uh, date right 1963. now. 1963. 63, it mm-hmm. is black and white. Oh. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little just a little tease for this and for the listeners at home. If you don't want to sit and listen to two guys talk about a fifty some odd year old shoot sixty some odd year old right. uh, Japanese movie, it is based on an Ed McBain novel. Who Ed McBain wrote a series of novels uh, about uh, New York City cops in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. And this is Akira Kurosawa's adaptation of an Ed McBain novel, High and Low. Well, I mean, listen, you tell me that. <laughs> Challenge accepted. I think it's great that an American an American book, you know, um, influenced a Japanese film. And uh, what and you're saying a good Japanese film, so that makes it even better. So Challenge accepted, and I'm looking forward to it. It's one of my favorite Kurosawa films. I have a lot of favorite Kurosawa films. This is one of my favorites. And we haven't we haven't been exotic. We haven't gone to uh, some uh, other countries' movies in a while. So Japan, Kurosawa, high and low for next week. All right. All right. This, listen, I thought today was great, and I'm looking forward to next week also. So challenge accepted, and, uh, you know, looking forward to... Uh, to uh, hearing you tell me all about Avengers uh, Infinity War. I'm I'm here for the Brolin. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> He's so great. He's great. <laughs> again, uh, guys, like I said, we uh, we started the, at the beginning. We ask if if you're enjoying this, give us a rating, give us a review, helps us out, and uh, we'll see where this thing can go. So yeah. uh, and uh, you can also get us on our uh, various uh, uh, social media platforms. Anybody has any uh, questions or comments, and you know we take uh, critiques too. If then uh, you know if they're towards Jason, uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we'll be well, happy our, to take those also. <laughs> you 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 take them and you engage and you show them to me and I say yeah, yeah. and then we move on. But for the most part, <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> yeah, we are very grateful that anyone at all is listening to us. So uh, Arco, again, thank you very much. Uh, next week, High and Low and Avengers Infinity War on Movie Challenge Accepted. We will see you then. Take care, everybody. Bye.